Section 17 of Mince Pie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mince Pie by Christopher Morley. Section 17. Two days we celebrate. If we were asked, we have not been asked, to name a day the world ought to celebrate and does not, we would name the 16th of May. For on that day, in the year 1763, James Boswell first met Dr. Samuel Johnson. This great event, which enriched the world with one of the most vivid panoramas of human nature known to man, happened in Tom Davies' bookshop in Covent Garden. Mr. and Mrs. Davies were friends of the doctor, who frequently visited their shop. Of them, Boswell remarks quaintly, that though they had been on the stage for many years, they maintained an uniform decency of character. The shop seems to have been a charming place. One went there not merely to buy books, but also to have a cup of tea in the back parlor. It is sad to think that though we have been hanging round bookshops for a number of years, we've never yet met a bookseller who invited us into the private office for a quiet cup. Wait a moment, though. We're forgetting Dr. Rosenbach, the famous bookseller of Philadelphia, but his collations, held in amazed memory by many editioneers, rarely descend to anything so humble as tea. One recalls a confused glamour of Ortolians, trust guinea hens, strawberries reclining in a bowl carved out of solid ice, and what used to be known as vintages. It is a pity that Dr. Johnson died too soon to take lunch with Dr. Rosenbach. At last on Monday, the 16th of May, says Boswell, when I was sitting in Mr. Davies' back parlor, after having drunk tea with him and Mrs. Davies, Johnson unexpectedly came into the shop, and Mr. Davies, having perceived him through the glass door, announced his awful approach to me. Mr. Davies mentioned my name, and respectfully introduced me to him. I was much agitated. The volatile Boswell may be forgiven his agitation. We also would have trembled not a little. Boswell was only twenty-two, and probably felt that his whole life and career hung upon the great man's mood. But embarrassment is a comely emotion for a young man in the face of greatness, and the doctor was speedily put in a good humor by an opportunity to utter his favorite pleasantry at the expense of the Scotch. "'I do indeed come from Scotland,' cried Boswell, after Davies had let the cat out of the bag, but I cannot help it. "'That, sir,' said Dr. Johnson, "'is what a great many of your countrymen cannot help. The great book,' that dated from that meeting in Davies' back parlor, has become one of the most intimately cherished possessions of the race. One finds its admirers and students scattered over the globe. No man who loves human nature in all its quirks and pangs, seasoned with bluff honesty and the genuineness of a cliff for a tree, can afford to step into a hearse until he has made it his own. And it is a noteworthy illustration of the biblical saying, that whosoever will rule, let him be a servant. Boswell made himself the servant of Johnson, and became one of the masters of English literature. It used to annoy us to hear Karl Rosner referred to as the Kaiser's Boswell. For to Boswellize, 
which is a verb that has gone into our dictionaries, means not merely to transcribe faithfully the acts and moods and import of a man's life. It implies also that the man so delineated be a good man and a great. Horace Traubel was perhaps a Boswell, but Rosner never. It is pleasant to know that Boswell was not merely a kind of animated notebook. He was a droll, vain, erring, bibulous, warm-hearted creature, a good deal of a peeps, in fact, with all the peeps he invices and virtues, Mr. A. Edward Newton's amenity of book-collecting makes Boswell very human to us. How jolly it is to learn that Jamie, like many lesser fries since, wrote press notices about himself. Here is one of his own blurbs, which we quote from Mr. Newton's book. Boswell, the author, is a most excellent man. He is of an ancient family in the west of Scotland, upon which he values himself not a little. At his nativity there appeared omens of his future greatness. His parts are bright, and his education has been good. He has travelled in post-chaise miles without number. He is fond of seeing much of the world. He eats of every good dish, especially apple pie. He drinks old hock. He has a very fine temper. He's somewhat of a humorist and a little tinctured with pride. He has a good manly countenance, and he owns himself to be amorous. He has infinite vivacity, yet is observed at times to have a melancholy cast. He is rather fat than lean, rather short than tall, rather young than old. His shoes are neatly made, and he never wears spectacles. This brings the excellent Boswell very close to us indeed. He might almost be a member of the Authors League, especially Apple Pie, bless his heart. When we said that Boswell was a kind of peeps, we fell by chance into a happy comparison. Not only by his volatile errors was he of the tribe of Samuel, but in his outstanding character by which he becomes of importance to posterity, that of one of the great diarists. Now there is no human failing upon which we look with more affectionate lenience than that of keeping a diary. All of us, in our pilgrimage through the difficult thickets of this world, have moods and moments when we have to fall back on ourselves for the only complete understanding and absolution we will ever find. In such times how pleasant it is to record our emotions and misgivings in the sure and secret pages of some privy notebook and how entertaining to read them again in later years. Dr. Johnson himself advised Bozzy to keep a journal, though he little suspected to what use it would be put. The cynical will say that he did so in order that Bozzy would have less time to pester him. But we believe his advice was sincere. It must have been, for the doctor kept one himself, of which more in a moment. He said it would be a very good exercise, and would yield me great satisfaction when the particulars were faded from my remembrance. He counseled me to keep it private, and said I might surely have a friend who would burn it in case of my death. Happily, it was not burned. The great doctor never seemed so near to me as the other day when I saw the little notebook, bound in soft brown leather and interleaved with blotting paper, in which Bozzy's busy pen had jotted down memoranda of his talks with his friend, while they were still echoing in his mind. From this notebook, 
which must have been one of many, the paragraphs were transferred practically unaltered into the life. This superb treasure, now owned by Mr. Adam of Buffalo, almost makes one hear the doctor's voice, and one imagines Boswell sitting up at night with his candle, methodically recording the remarks of the day. The first entry was dated September 22nd, 1777. So Bozzy must have carried it in his pocket when Dr. Johnson and he were visiting Dr. Taylor in Ashbourne. It was during this junket that Dr. Johnson tried to pole the large dead cat over Dr. Taylor's dam, an incident that Boswell recorded as part of his Flemish picture of my friend. It was then also that Mrs. Killingsley, mistress of Ashbourne's leading in The Green Man, begged Boswell to name the house to his extensive acquaintance. Certainly, Bozzy's acquaintance was to be far more extensive than good Mrs. Killingsley could ever dreamed. It was he who named the house to me, and for this reason the green man profited in fourpence worth of cider one hundred and thirty-four years later. There is another day we have vowed to commemorate by drinking great flagonage of tea, and that is the 18th of September, Dr. Johnson's birthday. The great cham needs no champion. His speech and person have become part of our common heritage. Yet the extraordinary scenario in which Boswell filmed him for us has attained that curious estate of great literature, the characteristic of which is that every man imagines he has read it, though he may never have opened its pages. It's like a historic landmark of one's home town, which foreigners from overseas come to study but which the denizen has hardly entered. It is like Niagara Falls. We have a very fair mental picture of the spectacle, and little zeal to visit the uproar itself. And so, though we all use Dr. Johnson's sharply stamped coinages, we generally are too lax about visiting the Mint. But we will never cease to pray that every honest man should study Boswell. There are many who have topped the rise of human felicity in that book. When reading it, they feel the tide of intellect brim the mind with a unique fullness of satisfaction. It is not a mere commentary on life. It is life. It fills and floods every channel of the brain. It is a book that men make a hobby of, as golf or billiards. To know it is a liberal education. I could have understood Germany yearning to invade England in order to annex Boswell's Johnson. There would have been some sense in that. What is the average man's conception of Dr. Johnson? We think of a huge, ungainly creature, slovenly of dress, addicted to tea, the author of a dictionary, and the center of a town coterie. We think of him prefacing bluff and vehement remarks with Sir, and having a knack for demolishing opponents in boisterous argument, all of which is passing true. Just as is our picture of Niagara, we have never seen but how it misses the inner tenderness and tormented virtue of the man. So it is refreshing sometimes to turn away from Boswell to those passages where the good old doctor has revealed himself with his own hand. The letter to Chesterfield is too well known for comment, but no less noble and not nearly so well known is the preface to the dictionary. How moving it is in its sturdy courage its strong grasp of the tools of expression. In every line one feels the weight and push of a mind 
that had behind it the full reservoir of language, particularly the Latin. There is the same sense of urgent pressure that one feels in watching a strong stream backed up behind a dam. I look with pleasure on my book, however defective, and deliver it to the world with the spirit of a man that has endeavored well. That it will immediately become popular, I have not promised to myself. A few wild blunders and risible absurdities, from which no work of such multiplicity was ever free, may for a time furnish folly with laughter and harden ignorance in contempt, but useful diligence will at last prevail, and there never can be wanting some who distinguish desert, who will consider that no dictionary of living tongue can ever be perfect, since while it is hastening to publication, some words are budding and some falling away, that a whole life cannot be spent upon syntax and etymology, and that even a whole life would not be sufficient, that he whose design includes whatever language can express must often speak of what he does not understand, that a writer will sometimes be tarried by eagerness to the end, and sometimes faint with weariness under a task which Scalinger compares to the labors of the anvil and the mine, that what is obvious is not always known, and what is known is not always present, that sudden fits of inadvertency will surprise vigilance, slight avocations will seduce attention, and casual eclipses of the mind will darken learning, and that the writer shall often in vain trace his memory at the moment of need for that which yesterday he knew with intuitive readiness, and which will come uncalled into his thoughts to-morrow. I know of no better way of celebrating Dr. Johnson's birthday than by quoting a few passages from his Prayers and Meditations, jotted down during his life in small notebooks, and given shortly before his death to a friend. No one understands the dear old doctor unless he remembers that his spirit was greatly perplexed and harassed by sad and disordered broodings. The bodily twitchings and odd gestures which attracted so much attention as he rolled about the streets were symptoms of painful twitchings and gestures within. A great part of his intense delight in convivial gatherings, in conversation and the dinner-table, was due to his eagerness to be taken out of himself. One fears that his solitary hours were very often tragic. There were certain dates, which Dr. Johnson almost always commemorated in his private notebook, his birthday, the date of his wife's death, the Easter season and New Year's. In these pathetic little entries one sees the spirit that was dogmatic and proud among men abasing itself in humility and pouring out the generous tenderness of an affectionate nature. In these moments of contrition small piccadillos took on tragic importance in his mind. Rising late in the morning and the untidy state of his papers seemed unforgivable sins. There is hardly any more moving picture in the history of mankind than that of the rugged old doctor pouring out his innocent petitions for greater strength in ordering his life and bewailing his faults of sluggishness, indulgence at table, and disorderly thoughts. Let us begin with his entry on September 18, 1760, his fifty-second birthday. Resolved, D.J., to combat notions of obligation to apply to study, to reclaim imaginations, to consult the resolves on Tetty's, his wife's, 
coffin to rise early to study religion to go to church to drink less strong liquors to keep a journal to oppose laziness by doing what is to be done tomorrow rise as early as i can send for books for history of war put books in order scheme of life the very human feature of these little notes is that the same good resolutions appear year after year thus four years after the above we find him writing september eighteenth seventeen sixty four this is my fifty-sixth birthday the day on which i have concluded fifty-five years i have outlived many friends i have felt many sorrows i have made few improvements since my resolution formed last easter i have made no advancement in knowledge or in goodness nor do i recollect that i have endeavored it i am dejected but not hopeless i resolve to study the scriptures i hope in the original languages six hundred and forty verses every sunday will nearly comprise the scriptures in a year to read good books to study theology to treasure in my mind passages for recollection to rise early not later than six if i can i hope sooner but as soon as i can to keep a journal both of employment and of expenses to keep accounts to take care of my health by such means as i have designed to set down at night some plan for the morrow tomorrow i purpose to regulate my room at easter seventeen sixty five he confesses sadly that he often lies abed until two in the afternoon which after all was not so deplorable for he usually went to bed very late boswell has spoken of the unseasonable hour at which he had habituated himself to expect the oblivion of repose on new year's day seventeen sixty seven he prays enable me o lord to use all enjoyments with due temperance preserve me from unseasonable and immoderate sleep two years later than this he writes i am not yet in a state to form many resolutions i purpose and hope to rise early in the morning at eight and by degrees at six eight being the latest hour to which bedtime can be properly extended and six the earliest that the present system of life requires one of the most pathetic of his entries is the following on september eighteenth seventeen sixty eight this day it came into my mind to write the history of my melancholy on this i purpose to deliberate i know not whether it may not too much disturb me from time to time there have been stupid or malicious people who have said that johnson's marriage with a homely woman twenty years older than himself was not a love match for instance mr e w howe of atchison kansas in most respects an amiable and well-conducted philosopher uttered in howe's monthly may nineteen eighteen the following words which i hope he will forever regret i have heard that when a young man he johnson married an ugly and vulgar old woman for her money and that his taste was so bad that he worshipped her against this let us set what johnson wrote in his notebook on march twenty eighth seventeen seventy this is the day on which in seventeen fifty two i was deprived of poor dear tetty 
when i recollect the time in which we lived together my grief of her departure is not abated and i have less pleasure in any good that befalls me because she does not partake it on many occasions i think what she would have said or done when i saw the sea at Brighthelmstone, i wished for her to have seen it with me but with respect to her no rational wish is now left but that we may meet at last where the mercy of god shall make us happy and perhaps make us instrumental to the happiness of each other it is now eighteen years let us end the memorandum with a less solemn note on good friday seventeen seventy nine he and boswell went to church together when they returned the good old doctor sat down to read the bible and he says i gave boswell les pensées de pascal that he might not interrupt me of this very copy boswell says i preserve the book with reverence i wonder who has it now so let us wish dr johnson many happy returns of the day be sure that as long as paper and ink and eyesight preserve their virtue he will bide among us real and living and endlessly loved end of section seventeen